you lose that manufacturing that you had in Australia. And that's now been uh, brought to the fore with the yeah. new drugs coming out now, the RNA drugs, and I'm, I'm somewhat involved in some of the RNA uh, products. Welcome back to another episode of HPG Engaged Podcast. Today, I have Professor Adrian Boots. Um, it's an absolute pleasure to have you here. How are you today? I'm well, thank you. Thank you. First of all, thank you very much for we're sitting down with us today. Mm. Um, we find here at HPG that you, your career has been very interesting. You've, you've done a lot um, and you've made a massive influence on healthcare um, across the world and also particularly in um, Australia. You are the Director of Drug Development and Regulatory Affairs at my medical department. Correct. And you also are the principal consultant as well for your own advisory business. Yes. Is that correct? Yes, CR Consult. And how, how, has, how has that been for, for you? That's been fabulous. Um, it gives me an opportunity really to put people on the right path with their new medicine or device. There's a lot of entrepreneurs out there who need to uh, make sure they spend their money wisely and they develop sort of their product to really capitalize on the patient benefits. Uh, so that's, there's, I think there's a dearth of that in Australia and it's really been good for them. Amazing. And obviously before you started um, your consultancy business, you mm. worked um, for Roche for about 16 years. Mm. You had a tenure with the TGA mm. and you also had a tenure with ARCS as well. Mm. Um, so you've done quite a bit. So I, I want to delve into a few of those, but just to let's bring it all the way back. How, how did you end up where you are today what was the driving force behind I guess the early starts of your your career what did you study at university for example and and when you were studying that did you I guess envision mm. the career progression and experiences mm. that you would have had mm. going through that's a very good question um, I had some seminal sort of uh, activities that really changed my path when I was at high school, I was convinced by my brother to join him in pharmacy. We were going to have a chain of pharmacies at one stage. Um, I went through a pharmacy degree at, at University of Sydney, and then I did postgraduate work. And that postgraduate work was uh, with, in the AIDS ward in 1988, uh, at the height of the pandemic there, with many, many people dying mm. sometimes within a couple of weeks of... Um, being diagnosed mm. with AIDS and, and suddenly they were dead. It was a terrible time and was lots of drug repurposing, lots of things we didn't know, lots of drugs we used that at higher doses or never used before. So I quickly came to realize that um, what really uh, flooded my boat was bringing new medicines uh, to Australians, particularly in pandemic situations. So that time in the AIDS world, all those interviews I did with AIDS patients mm. for my um, adverse drug reaction work was, was, um, was terrific. And it's really took me in another direction. Um, from there, I, I always knew that I'd be joining industry rather than um, working on a one-to-one -one basis with patients, but then going to work industry, developing new medicines. Amazing. I feel like that's such an important the fact that you studied pharmacy because mm. whenever we speak to our recruitment consultants, when mm. we talk, giving people some insights, what are the type of degrees or if you had any advice for someone just entering or wanting to enter in the industry, they say the, the degree that you choose to study is very important, mm. particularly when it comes to clinical research and mm. regulatory affairs. Mm. And they have said um, pharmacy is one of the ones that they, they would recommend people studying. 
Yeah, pharmacy I find is particularly good for regulatory affairs because it, you cover the clinical side, the patient side, but you also have an understanding of the chemistry and the manufacturing and the pharmacokinetics, mm. pharmaceutics of medicines. So how, how they move around the body, how they're absorbed, how, how they're made, impurities and things. That's a skill set that really is suited to um, regulatory affairs. Clinical research, um, yes, pharmacy is very good for that, but there are many other degrees as yeah, well. For sure. Um, so let's touch on your time at Roche. You spent yeah. almost 16 years yeah. at Roche um, within regulatory affairs, but then you moved onwards into the clinical research space yeah. uh, as a clinical research manager. Um, why did you decide to join Roche and how was that time mm. span of 16 years mm. there? Well, like most people in the industry at that time, I'd actually worked at Abbott down at Cornell at their mm. manufacturing plant for, for a, um, a couple of years uh, as a regulatory affairs associate. I wanted to join industry and I made that move. Uh, I then uh, went to Roche as a senior regulatory affairs associate and moved up to a regulatory project manager and then regulatory affairs manager. Uh, so that was terrific. We were doing probably three new chemical entities per year. Mm. So we had a huge number of products coming through, but not as many indications as what you see now. So more drugs, less indications. And uh, that was that was a terrific time. Unfortunately, towards the end, we had to withdraw a, a Parkinson's drug due to um, uh, liver adverse events. Yeah. Uh, we had to deal with um, the withdrawal of a major hypertension drug. Uh, Posicor, uh, because of um, mainly drug interactions, 3A4, 2D6, which is a new sort of problem. And many people were having uh, side effects from other medicines when they're on that mm. blood pressure drug as well. And then after that, um, the the cupboard was kind of bare for Roche. It was a, it was a hard time for them. And um, I actually went to, looked at clinical research saying, well, I've spent eight or nine years in regulatory affairs. Is this what I'm going to do for the rest of my career? Or am I going to do something else? And I thought, I'm, I'm going to get involved in, in actually researching the drugs and the clinical trials. And so I, I, I asked and was moved to a clinical research position. So I went from regulatory affairs manager back down to clinical research mm. associate. But that was okay. I had to learn the ropes. Mm. And I worked my way up to a, um, a senior clinical research associate, a regional clinical project manager, a therapeutic area manager for oncology and um, clinical research manager. So we were at the stage where we had 27 project managers and 100 uh, staff um, in, within Australia. And we were managing trials throughout um, Southeast Asia and, uh, and South Africa as well as Australia. So it was a very, um, it was a very exciting time uh, in that sort of space. And it was interesting because about that time, uh, uh, it was the time that the, the factory was sold. So Abbott which I originally worked at, closed down their factory, and uh, Roche closed down their factory. But it was overtaken somewhat by the growth in clinical research in Australia, and that became a new fo focus of many of the businesses uh, to try and get the research done here because we did it faster, quicker, and cheaper than, than elsewhere, and we had high quality. So that was a, well, it was a significant time for the Australian industry and, and for, dare I say, for the hospitals and patients. Do you... Do you think one of the reasons why you moved from, I guess, regulatory to clinical research is because you felt like you could have more of an influence on on the pro the progress of, of the drugs? I yeah, guess, from a... I think it was broadening my experience and knowledge okay. um, as well. So <laughs> my first job when I went, came to clinical was to deal with uh, terrible audit, audit findings for a um, hepatitis C study uh, where the investigator had just done a 
terrible job of actually making sure that the right patients were in the study. Okay. Uh, so I was cleaning up that mess to start with. And, and so certainly um, there were the times where you had to clean up quality, but more so we had to sort of develop new sites. So I opened up a clinical research site for oncology in, um, in Lismore. And then we built Albury and Port Macquarie and Coffs Harbour and um, Wollongong. So we were going amazing. through the stage where, we, and Hornsby Hospital for that matter. So we were placing studies in with, with specialists who'd never seen studies before. And suddenly they were involved in an international program. And it really uh, made their job more interesting, even yeah, in sure. a regional centre. And, and that push towards regionalisation of clinical trials is continuing to this day. Uh, so um, it, was a, it was an interesting time to sort of expand our capability mm -hmm. uh, as a clinical research industry, of which you know many, many other companies you know, could then place their studies at those sites as well. 100%. Yeah. And do you think, just give people, because you mentioned that, I guess, Roche and Abbott had closed down their manufacturing. Yes. What, what, what was the reason behind that, do you yeah, think? Yeah, that was very interesting. There was a real push in the 90s to go to one manufacturing glo site globally. We, we took over Syntex um, in 19... 94 and I remember going to the syntax offices and there were tens of thousands of pages of 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 data there but it, it wasn't clear what was actually registered in Australia mm, and multiple okay. formulations uh, different formulations for each market um, it wasn't clear what was registered uh, and um, it there was a centralization for everything to Spain so all of a sudden we were going to say, well, we, this is what we think we've registered to the TGA. And, and the TGA says, well, this is what we think you've registered as well. Yeah. And there were a whole bunch of gaps. Yeah, there's a massive discrepancy a massive between gaps. information, I guess. From... A, a massive gap. So, so the that's, that's been very good for the international uh, industry to sort of have centralization. It helps cost structures of businesses. Mm. Uh, but, you know, you lose that manufacturing that you had in Australia. And that's now been... Uh, brought back. to the fore with the yeah. new drugs coming out now, the mm -hmm. RNA drugs, and I'm, I'm somewhat involved in some of the RNA uh, products and getting factories going again in Australia, That's but for more amazing. targeted, uh, smaller volume, high value add type products. Mm -hmm. mm. And you, you just touched on the, the TGA there, mm. um, and, I, and I mean for the majority of the public of Australia, if you'd ask them what the TGA was five years ago, they, they would not have one clue, but I guess... Now, a lot of them would would have that because the TGA was mentioned quite a bit over the, mm. the last uh, three years, let's say, and you were a part of that during that mm. time. Mm. So can you just give us a, a touch on your experience at the TGA? You were the assistant secretary for... Yes, I was the head of prescription medicines. Yes. So I had about 100 staff, um, 40 medical specialists, about 10 or 15 pharmacists and about... 30, 40 other scientists or so and admin staff um, running the program. So that was fabulous. I, I've actually been involved with the TGA since 1993. Okay. I was, <laughs> I was running conferences, the first ever conferences uh, with them and, and, and the first ever conferences for, for health economics and pricing as well with the, what was then the pharmaceutical benefits branch. So that was about 1997. Um, and then when I became CEO of ARCS, that, that stepped up again, mm -hmm. uh, where I was working to convey education for the TGA about what's happening to the sector. But you're right, everyone within industry knew the TGA, mm -hmm. but it was only the last few years, particularly with the pandemic, that the, the, the public have aware that we've got a TGA and it's the equivalent of the US FDA, FDA yeah. Yeah, <laughs> albeit exactly. much smaller, or the MHRA <laughs> in the UK. Uh, so it's, um, it, it's certainly, it's been a lot more prominent. Um, 
and, and I think that's very beneficial because you, the public needs trust in the regulator and the government to bring forward quality products. Uh, we know that industry is doing that, but uh, a regulator re reassuring the public to say that this medicine, yes, does work, particularly so in this group, not so much in that group. That sort of fine-tuning of a medicine is, is important for a regulator to do, to give the public confidence. 100%. And during your time at the TGA, mm. particularly over the past mm. three years, there is obviously a need for drug to market quicker than yes. usual. Yep. How were you able to, I guess, reform the structures to help respond to the demand that yep. obviously the Australian um, public needed yeah. at the time? So the Therapeutic Goods Act was written in 89 and implemented in 91, and then it's pretty much been the same for medicines. <laughs> and then uh, when I came, uh, came there, there was, a, there was an impetus to reform. Mm -hmm. So I brought in the priority pathway, the provisional pathway, pathway which is, has less clinical data initially. All the COVID medicines and some oncology medicines are using that. Um, comparable overseas regulator A and B, using evaluation reports mainly from, from Europe. Uh, and also uh, Project Orbis, um, which is uh, a collaboration with Australia FDA and, and other, other major regulators on the oncology products. Uh, so it, it's really been, uh, as well as the standard pathway, so I've gone from one to seven pathways to bring new medicines to market. Mm -hmm. So over time, our timelines have got better and better in Australia for bringing new medicines and more consistent, more known. But I think these just brought more options in sort of, well, where are you up to with your evaluation? Can we uh, go earlier and get an approval for your product? Yeah. Can we do it faster still? Can we um, reuse some evaluations that are used overseas without having to do our de novo ones? Yes. So those are the very, um, those are some big things. I also brought in orphan reforms um, and I restructured the branch somewhat to have an advanced biomedical sort of therapies area uh, to cope with all the new medicines coming through in that space. Uh, and I also brought in a pharmacist evaluation unit to free up those 40 medical specialists so that um, they can concentrate on doing the bigger things faster. So there was uh, and, and some electronic forms and other things that we did. So it's been trying to make the TGA more transparent, more efficient, mm -hmm. uh, and and making it more efficient for industry as well. Um, I think I think there's I, I always found there was a lot of doubt about industry and TGA in my dealings with them over thirty years. Yeah. Um, but I think there is confidence the industry does the right thing, um, and uh, TGA can support the industry but as, as well as being a regulator. So it's, it's interesting. You can, be, you can be the educator as well as the enforcer. And exactly. that's, that's, that's important for a regulator to be. You've made so many, so many good points there. And I think, mm. I guess, that's why conversations like this are so important mm. um, because you are giving us an insight into what really was going on behind <laughs> closed doors. <laughs> Obviously, to the, to the public, a lot of people would have thought, these drugs are coming through quicker but if you really were to find out what was happening you were creating different modalities different structures different um segments of the organizations that was allowing mm. what usually i guess 30 people would be doing a certain role you're bringing in more people that would free them up to to specifically concentrate on this aspect of well, it Well, even more so even more so because um <laughs> I was the Australian government representative at the first COVID meeting in Geneva in February. Yes, I remember was, you in, Janu that. Yeah. in January, there was a phone call, Adrian, you need to go to Geneva. So, uh, yeah, but it was nice. I, I, I sat down with many experts around the world and um, 
uh, at the inner table next to the Chinese delegation, not the delegation I wanted to sit <laughs> next to with the, uh, <laughs> that. But, but I remember one of the, the head of infectious diseases at Shanghai University Hospital told me, you know, look, day four, they're, they're okay. Day, fi day five, they're in ICU. Mm. And all the infectious diseases people in the room went, oh, my God. So I came back and sort of tried, tried to get the meetings that I needed to have in health yeah, to exactly. try and get this thing. But in terms of my own branch, uh, and, and other branches, I brought everyone in. Um, so we had multiple people working on the first drugs. The first drug was Gilead's uh, Remdesivir. Um, and it was it was tough, actually, because we had to convince, or I had to convince, and the local representatives of Gilead had to re represent, convince their international partners to allow us to go to, come to Australia soon. They were worried about, yeah. you know, well, if we've got limited resources, which country do we go to first? And Australia didn't have too much COVID then. So but, then... But we were pushing, pushing, and, and between the local people and I, we got it, and we, yeah, we got our good. first medicine there. But even Remdesivir and a lot, lot of antivirals, they, they work on a specific subgroup. Um, and it was finding out, well, when do you use that in the course of therapy? Mm -hmm. And we're learning more and more about its, it's, it's clinical research uh, with real-world evidence that saying, well, where can we use these drugs the best? How can we use the vaccines the best? Particularly since this... this, um, this pandemic is translating to exactly. different things new variants new new issues etc and what would you have said was i guess the the biggest roadblock when it when it came to i guess trying to navigate through all all the the, the changes that were happening so quickly well the nice thing was was that everyone in tga knew the importance of a pandemic um and it, they the roadblocks disappeared Okay. <laughs> so that was nice. You know, it's nice to see gone. when government, you know, government does big things slowly, but when in, in COVID, they really moved quickly yeah. in, in many areas. In a few areas I found wanting, but, um, but generally we moved quickly. And I think that was a real, real, uh, the unsung heroes, the doctors and the pharmacists and the scientists in the building were really doing their utmost to get it, get it through as quickly as possible. And, 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 but at the same time, they're worried, do we want to give people false hope? Yeah. One of the early meetings was one of the one of the regulators was saying, "Well, thirty percent is the minimum efficacy we'd accept." Another one was saying forty percent. Well, we didn't have false hope. We had drugs coming through, vaccines coming through, with seventy, eighty, ninety percent efficacy. But do you not think thirty percent, forty percent efficacy is quite low? Or? It was quite low. Yeah. But if we've got nothing else, what, yeah, do, you, what, do, you, what so. do you go with? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's yeah. interesting. So it, when you come to a regulator and you say, "Well, what, uh, you know, what will you accept?" when you've got nothing you, okay you, you yeah. have a fairly low yeah, bar and 100%. you can raise the bar over time and that, i think that's the case with many medicines mm. and many areas as you become better with them uh, you can understand well how can we how can companies themselves raise the bar or how can regulators help them yeah. raise the bar amazing and i guess moving on from your tga you've mm. you've done quite a lot i'm sure mm. if people mm. are listening right now they've realized you've you've done quite a bit throughout your career mm. and then that's moved you into a position where you've decided to open your own consultancy mm. consultancy mm. firm within regulatory affairs yeah. um yeah. what was fully the the driving driving force but behind that and yeah how's that been going over the past well i guess throughout my career i've tried to do a bunch of diverse things um and but apply the learning from the last part to the next part so where i think is the real thing is two areas one is is design good clinical studies so i'm involved a little bit with the magic mushrooms the psilocybin mm -hmm. the medicinal cannabis for pain etc so i'm inv involved with those i'm dealing with um people with new technologies and devices and things so, so trying to um 
point them in the right direction to to get a because the problem is is people get to regulatory affairs and then they the problem stems back to they didn't do the right studies okay <laughs> so yeah. you don't think of these things as silos don't think of health health economics clinical research regulatory affairs as silos if and and this is one of the points i'll i'll, I'll make maybe later is that you need to a good person understands all the all the facets and what each group needs and yeah. you think with you think about with those in mind so with with regulatory affairs um, I'm, I'm often helping them design their studies better for pricing for for reimbursement i'm also involved a little bit with people regulatory problems people have got appeals people have been rejected yeah and uh trying to and and some of that stems back to what i was saying before they just haven't done their development right or they haven't proposed their product in the right way to the regulator um and i don't like to see things with millions or tens or hundreds of millions of dollars behind them fail yeah i'd like to think that they come through and and, and you can pull something out of the fire and how do you com combat that whenever if someone comes to you and says we've, we've got to this point it's been rejected yeah is it a matter of going all the way back to the start and and restructuring and figuring out yeah you wouldn't go back to the, wouldn't go back to start and rerun a study unless you really had to yeah, so okay. it's really so sort of what, what can you point of action what can you pull out of the fire uh, that sort of thing and, and sometimes the regulator gets it a little bit wrong and, and applies the wrong bar the wrong threshold mm -hmm. uh, to to something so sometimes it's 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 a matter of um, understanding where to where to challenge and and where to where to sort of well that's 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 the way it is and we, we it, it's very hard to resurrect maybe only a, sm a small part of what you'd hope for but this is what Australia needs to do better, where they need to get this drug development right from the beginning, knowing what regulators and payers need mm -hmm. at the end, and knowing where the market's moving. I, I've, I've had some experiences at, at TGA where people came to me and they had the best drug development in 2012, but the world moved on in the next eight years. Yeah. And then suddenly, um, because of that, and they didn't change their development program, they couldn't get an approval. That was very disappointing for them. I was disappointed for them. Oh, for sure. And do you, do you think that it, it comes, maybe it stems from a standpoint that, I guess, in particular Australia, there's a lot a lot, a lot of important when it comes to the drugs that we, we see, I guess, even over the counter. And, and it's coming from a place where Australia is almost trying to catch up. So then there's a yeah. lot of learning for them to do in order to get to a point of, let's say, um, clinical research and um, clinical research in the United States and even clinical mm. research mm. across um, the UK and Europe. We've touched on some good parts there in that we, we have some gaps in, in, in the services that are provided to the industry at the moment, but also um, that the number of new medicines that are coming to Australia. My, my challenge is even in 2020, there were 35 new medicines in Australia. There were 54 in the, in the US. Okay. So this is not part of the conversation, but it should be. Yeah. Many companies aren't bringing their, their innovative products to Australia, and they should. So um, that, despite the extra pathway. So, mm -hmm. so that's, the, that's the second point. The third point I'd make is the blend of and, and sharing of knowledge between industry, uh, academia, and government. Mm -hmm. So you have a lot more movement between the three sectors in some of the other jurisdictions, such as the FDA. There's a lot of ex-FDA evaluators in, in industry mm -hmm. that can help guide them on their way. Uh, and then uh, and, and so they, they develop good things. We don't have that as much. And so we need to, people to be conscious of what regulators need in Australia and elsewhere and bring that into the conversation earlier and bring it into the academic teaching as well, which is what I'm involved with uh, in, in my professorship. I do find that 
what you just stated where there needs to be more communication between mm. areas in healthcare mm. is quite a regular comment that a lot of our interviews and with other people for the podcast have yeah. said there there is see there seems to be a massive gap with communication yeah. and some parts of industry don't know what other parts of industry are doing mm. um and it com- and it comes from a standpoint where they think with technology mm. and being able to store a lot of the information online that shouldn't be the case and mm. um, so how what do you think is the best way to, to well, combat i think you have a problem with information overload yeah. trying try to keep up There's with everything <laughs> everything's going on in yeah. every field is, is very hard look i think um there i think the government's actually cottoned on to this and uh, one of the things that's happening in new south wales is the biomedical precinct okay. about 180 million dollars is uh, being put into a precinct for industry innovators um, researchers and um, um, academia uh, near Camperdown, and that'll be built once I think once some of the Western distributors built underneath, then they'll be building <laughs> that on top. Yeah. Uh, so uh, so, but that's what we need. We need that sort of that sharing, that sort of that transition. It's going to be very hard without the casual conversations and getting to know people in other sectors to do that. Um, that was one of my things I was trying to do with Arcs when I was CEO of Arcs. I was trying to bring in clinical study coordinators into the fold. Uh, and uh, clinical investigators as well to sort of understand that um, we're an ecosystem, not not a silo. Exactly. Uh, and uh, I think medical affairs are doing a good job of reaching out now more to um, investigators than, than what we've ever done, ever done before as well. Perfect. Um, so you've seen a lot of change within the healthcare landscape over the past 20 plus years, but in particular you've been in and around regulatory affairs and clinical research, but what are some of the I guess the biggest standout changes that you've you've seen yeah. across yeah. Um, those two industries in particular. Uh, well, for clinical research and regulatory affairs, I think the emergence of clinical research uh, as a in, important part of the business um, in terms of getting new therapies to Australian patients, but also generating data, good quality data, very quickly. Uh, we're still one of the fastest countries in the world to start clinical trials. And that's really meant that we've built up our capabilities in phase one, phase two somewhat, not so much phase three. Phase three is probably, uh, you, you go to some of the other larger, larger countries around the world for phase three. Why do, you, why do you think that is? Yeah, phase one and two is really a faster start. Phase three is more sort of like, can you get you know, 30 patients per site or 50 patients per site or 10 okay. patients per site? And, and I was always... So it's almost like a population issue, I guess. Yeah, so this is, this is one thing that we've got to fix with the clinical research industry is that it's, um, they're still quite siloed. When I, when I do a metastatic breast cancer study feasibility at Prince, Royal Prince Alfred, I'd get, you know, I see 50 new patients a year. No, sorry, no, that's wrong. It was about 10 new patients a year. And for South Korea, they'd see 50. Okay. Partly because they had a greater feeding area. And we've still got the problem that we don't have vast volumes of patients coming through central sites for phase three research. But for the early phase research, we've got a great competitive advantage in Australia. Amazing. And what, what about phase four? Yeah, phase, phase four, definitely. You need to fill in the gaps um, with, uh, with, with products. Um, phase four, post-market research, that needs to continue. Uh, and dare I say... With the, especially with the PD-1s, PDL one drugs, we at TGA, we're seeing seven to nine applications per year for new indications from, the, from BMS and, and, mm. and, and, and MSD. 
in particular, with with many new indications coming through. So there needs to be more phase three research on, on that. So there's been fewer drugs, but with um, far more indications now. And with targeted medicines, it means you have to go after each individual indication. You can't just sort of get a, a broad hypertension mm -hmm. thing. You're looking at individual cancers, individual subgroups of rheumatoid arthritis, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, th that, that might change. Um, Mind you, we might look at, uh, you know, looking at mechanism of action, which means it suddenly it goes across large, large swathes of, um, of cancers. Uh, so there's clinical research has changed a little bit. So for regulatory affairs, uh, one of the things that we have is more reliance mechanisms. So we've got the Orbis uh, activity, which is led by the FDA for oncology products. And then we've got the access pathway, Australia, Canada, um, England, Singapore, Switzerland, and, our, uh, and, and so those countries are working together as strong second tier um, countries with about a population of 170 million to mm. make sure that we uh, collectively get the products and get them approved very quickly as well. So there's more reliance and trust happening between regulators as well. I think, it's, I think that's very positive. We, we can't afford a country of 25 million to have its own pathway yeah. for its own <laughs> issue. So, yeah. so I, think that's, I think that's a very positive thing for, for regulation uh, as well. Um, just more broadly, I, th I think unfinished business is is the pricing and reimbursement. I think that's, but that's always in in my career in industry, that's always been an issue. Yeah, and manufacturing, pulling up and and getting um, uh, manufacturing in Australia again is important. I think with shipments and and limited supplies, I think it's really made it clear that companies may not be able to go with one one manufacturing site per for the whole world. Yeah, that's per, true. Per product anymore, that's that's probably a luxury that. Um, doesn't consider shutdowns and COVID problems and other things. 100%. And just to finish off, lastly, um, do you have any advice, I guess three tips for someone mm -hmm. who in particular is looking to enter into clinical research mm -hmm. or regulatory affairs? What mm -hmm. are some mm -hmm. tips and tricks trying to get, trying to, I guess, make their way through the industry? Yeah. I think knowing the people side as well as the technical side um, is very important. The, the relationships that you build with, with people and with sites um, in clinical is very important. With regulatory, uh, very much a, a technical area, but you need to understand the full business. What does marketing need? What, is, what do health economics need? What, what are the objectives to do? So it's thinking a little bit out. It's becoming very skilled at that area, but also understanding the greater business is and, and hoping that they understand you as well, I think is very important. I think take the opportunities. Uh, so throughout my career, I've had international responsi responsibilities for companies, but based out of Australia. And that's sort of saying, we need someone, and you know, my hand was volunteered, and <laughs> but, yeah. but uh, yeah, I've never said no. Yeah. So you take on those responsibilities, and they broaden your skill base. I think move around uh, as well. Uh, it could be different companies or different roles within the one company, which is a luxury. I had many different roles at Roche, yeah. um, and that's why I stayed so long. Um, but I think uh, then thinking about doing things that are related and bringing knowledge with you. So you know, being CEO of ARCS for um, six years was great in terms of educating people more broadly across the sector, uh, and being at TGA is understanding government and regulation, and, and, but also bringing a knowledge of industry and how to make things work. I don't think those pathways would have worked as well if you had a, a, a fully, a, a long-term public servant who'd never worked in drug regulations or drug or clinical oh, trials sure, implementing sure. those because you could understand where you could flex and where you need to be inflexible yes. <laughs> to, to make things work, work on both yeah. sides. Amazing, well, 
Thank you very much, Professor mm. Eugene Boots, for um, sitting down with me today. Mm. This has been very informative and very eye-opening um, to hear about your time at the TGA, to hear about um, your time at Roche. Um, I hope everyone listening today has uh, enjoyed the podcast. Mm. Um, but where can people, I guess, because you obviously have your consultancy mm. consultancy firm, where can people find um, your, you or your website? Just, um, just let us know that. Uh, okay. Uh, well, um, I'll just give you an email address, which is a Gmail address. Yeah. <laughs> um, ajboots at, at gmail.com. Just, just drop me a line if you want some help. And I'm very happy to sort of, uh, for a second opinions on things, helping out your reg team where necessary, uh, or the clinical research team in your drug development. So anything from big to small. I, where What really floats my boat is, is helping people getting new medicines for Australian patients. Just going back to my days in the AIDS ward, that's, uh, that's really, um, really... Uh, been the focus of my career over many years. Amazing. Thank you very much, Professor. Thank you.